I believe you have some information for us. So said Donald Trump Jr. to the Russian lawyer who showed up at Trump Tower on June 9th, 2016, supposedly bringing a smoking gun, incriminating files about Hillary Clinton straight from Kremlin archives. More than 2,000 pages of transcripts just released by the Senate Judiciary Committee offer new insights into that now-notorious meeting between top Trump campaign officials and a delegation of Russians. The release came during a week of major new developments about the investigations into Trump and the events of 2016, including a new financial disclosure form from the president that lists a repaid debt he somehow omitted from last year's form, more than $100,000 he paid to his embattled personal attorney, Michael Cohen, for funneling hush money to a porn star. And for those of you who thought Russian cyber hacks posed a major national security risk, there was this largely overlooked story. The Trump administration has just abolished the job of the White House cyber czar in charge of thwarting such attacks. We'll talk about this with a top investigative reporter on the Russia story, as well as a former White House cyber chief on today's episode of Skullduggery. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. Because people have got to know whether or not their presidents are crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just say Russia yes no is a it? ruse. I'm Michael Isikoff, chief investigative correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, editor-in-chief of Yahoo News. Uh, to make sense of this uh, wild week, uh, we are joined by our old comrade-in-arms from uh, Newsweek days, Mark Hosenball, uh, one of the great investigative journalists of our time uh, and uh, somebody who is deeply enmeshed in um, all the aspects of the Russia story. Uh, welcome, Mark. So the, Thank I, you very much. Hey, so b- b- before we actually get started, I just want to, I was remembering, so the three of us were together at Newsweek for the the, the mid, mid to late 90s and into you know, 2000 and 9-11 and Clinton scandals and Monica Lewinsky and everything else. And when I first came to Newsweek, I guess it was like 95, 96, I was in my very first news meeting. Evan Thomas was the bureau chief. And he referred to you guys as Hosenkoff, which, uh, (laughs) you know, for fans of uh, all the president's men, people will remember Ben Bradley referring to Woodward and Bernstein as Woodstein. Woodstein. I thought that was pretty cool. Hosenkoff. Yeah, I would have preferred Isabel, but uh, <laughs> um, whatever. Uh, so uh, let's start out with this uh, a, a giant transcript dump from the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee on all the interviews they did on the Trump Tower meeting. The Trump Tower meeting was so central to the uh, Russia investigation. What did you make of it? Um, I don't know. I didn't have that much time to go through this stuff because I was working on another story, which I think we're going to get to later. I did look at some of the documents. Some of the documents were actually kind of interesting to me. There was a whole bunch of documents that were put in there as exhibits. One of the documents was the supposedly famous Manafort uh, notes, uh, which I think were put in there by Rob Goldstone uh, as to what was discussed at the meeting. And there was something in there about discussions about RNC, which people have said are supposed to be discussions about the DNC, hacking the, D, hacking the DNC. I mean, all this stuff is kind of cryptic. I, I read Simpson's uh, transcripts a long time ago, and oddly enough, the, the investigations that, and, and cross-examination that, that Grassley did of Simpson was actually— You're talking about Glenn, Glenn Simpson, Simpson of Fusion uh, GPS. friend yeah. from now Fusion GPS fame. Right. Yeah. The, the, the interesting thing about that was the, the, the interviews that he gave to— uh, the House Intelligence Committee were actually much more uh, illuminating and uh, uh, informative than the interviews that he gave to Grassley's people. We also know, in fact, that as I understand it, Grassley's people uh, leaked to the House people uh, the uh, name of Simpson's, the bank of Fusion GPS, Simpson's, Simpson's company, 
and the bank account numbers. So then Nunez, on the House side, used his power to subpoena all of Simpson's bank records to try and discredit the investigation. Uh, Grassley was clearly trying to discredit uh, Simpson's investigation. He even put out letters and stuff uh, almost directly attacking um, Simpson and allowed uh, Simpson's great enemy, Bill Browder, to uh, right. have All a right. hearing Ma- and attack him. But, Ma- Mark, we're, we're, we're yeah. in the weeds here. Yeah, okay, well, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's just sort of take a little, from, you know, uh, distance. What basically, look, for, for the Democrats, the Trump Tower meeting is uh, central to the theory of collusion. The mere fact that it took place is evidence that the, uh, uh, that the Trump campaign was not just looking for dirt uh, from the Russians on Hillary Clinton, but participating in some way uh, to Republicans and the White House defenders. It's, look, nothing happened. Whatever it was, they were told they were going to get. They clearly didn't get it. Nobody, uh, the, the Russians showed up, who showed up, had another agenda about the Magnitsky Act, which the Trump people had no interest in at the time. Um, so what is your takeaway, having looked at these documents, looked at the transcripts, and um, uh, does, this, does this advance the theory of the case or not? Well, to my mind, there's a bit of a traffic jam regarding this meeting. And the problem is that uh, as you may or may not know, right before the meeting and soon after the meeting, uh, the two Russians who were there to allegedly peddle stuff, dirt on uh, on um, what was it on Hillary, they met with the people from Fusion GPS, right, including Glenn Simpson and uh, maybe other people. And well, where does that re- get you? Well, no, no, but the pro- Republicans are trying to conflate the, the the meetings with Simpson before and after the Trump Tower meeting. As one giant sort of no, conspiracy, I, I get now. that, and that uh, doesn't go anywhere. But well, I'm yeah, no, no, but it does. What... It does go somewhere because the Republicans, both on the House side and on the Senate side, are using this to try and distract or at least blunt the edge of the investigations into into alleged collusion. But in your view, in terms of the core issue, which is collusion, which is what the uh, committees are investigating, what Mueller is investigating, does the Trump Tower meeting in and of itself advance the ball? Does it advance the theory of the case that there was cooperation between the Trump campaign and the Russians, or is it a distraction? The most important evidence to come out of that meeting is the Donald Trump Jr.'s uh, exchange uh, in email with Rob Goldstone, the publicist for the Russians that they were dealing with. In which he says, I, I love to have the Hillary stuff. So, if it's yeah, what yeah. you say. Look, I, yeah. Right, yeah, exactly. I think, so to your question, Isakoff, I, I don't think it uh, advances the case in terms of proving actual collusion. But it does kind of reinforce the idea that uh, Donald Trump Jr. certainly, and everyone, all the Trump people who were at that meeting were, as some people have put it, collusion curious. Um, or even more than curious, they they showed a predispos- predisposition toward collusion, and I don't think you know, um, you know, if if they ha- if if the Russian lawyer and, and the others there had turned over dirt, do we have any doubt they would have accepted it? No, no, they no. Wouldn't. They were certainly very keen to get any dirt on Hillary that they could possibly get. That's that that demonstrates that. Right. I All right, like so, your phrase, uh, "collusion yeah. curious." Yes. Well, I ripped it off. I, I think <laughs> I ripped it off from John. You Di- try to patent that. Well, I think the money would have to go to John Dickerson of CBS because I, oh, I believe okay. I believe he said that somewhere. <laughs> but hey, Isakoff, you actually dug up a kind of colorful detail in the in the trans- yeah. in the transcripts. Uh, which, uh, well, it, it was sort of buried in the transcripts of. Uh, uh, the Rob Goldstone interview. Um, uh, and so the remember, this meeting is set up because Aras Agalarov, the billionaire Russian oligarch who was Donald Trump's business partner in the Miss Universe pageant, and then in his attempt to build a Trump Tower in Moscow, they had signed a letter of intent in 2013. They uh, actually, Ivanka Trump had flown over to Moscow in February 2014 to to scout potential sites for it. Um, uh, That it's Agas Agalarov, Aras Agalarov, sorry, who who requested this meeting take place, and if the real agenda was 
the Magnitsky Act, this this law passed by Congress to impose sanctions on Russian human rights abusers. That's not something that was central or important to uh, Agalarov's real estate business. So you have to ask yourself, why did he um, request this meeting in the first place? What was it to him to bring uh, to have a Russian Kremlin-connected lawyer bring documents that, uh, to the Trump people with the goal of getting them on board with getting rid of the Magnitsky Act? Um, I think that's you know number one, and then number two, you put that together with there was clear cultivation by the Aguilarovs with the Trump organization and Trump himself. And the nugget that you're referring to there, uh, Danny, is the day after the Trump Tower meeting, um, Aras Aguilarov and his son Emin, the pop singer, uh, arranged to deliver a rather sizable birthday gift to Donald Trump himself at Trump Tower, a large painting along with a personal note from Aguilaroff. That certainly fits the theory that this was all part of an attempt to cultivate Donald Trump. No, moreover, the fact that the Trump people, you know, are now making this point, oh, we all walked out really early when we found out it was all, all about the Magnitsky Act. Well, <laughs> that, that would seem to reinforce the idea that the only reason they were there was to somehow get dirt on Hillary. Well, of course. Yeah, we, yeah, 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 no, I mean, yeah. also, you know, look, the, the larger question that uh, does raise, that is raised by the transcripts is, did Trump himself know about the uh, about the meeting? And this gets to the fact that it, it buried in these transcripts uh, – uh, is uh, documents showing that uh, Donald Trump Jr. was trying to make uh, to before the meeting call Emin Aguilarov, the pop singer in 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 Moscow. He doesn't get through it first. Then there's a call with a blocked number. And then that's followed by another call with Aguilarov. So the question is, who was that block number call with? And uh, I think the uh, there has been speculation that it was his father, Donald Trump himself. Um, but of course, uh, uh, Trump Jr. said during his interview he didn't recall who he had right. talked to. So, did, so now did did Trump ever get that gift? Did he get that painting? Yes, he did. Okay. In fact, he so, sent a thank you no, note to right. uh, uh, Harris Aguilera. Right. So, I mean, it's just kind of, it also sort of suggests, I mean, it's hard to believe that he gets this present. Like, the, what's the context? I mean, Trump is going to ask, well, okay, well, how, where am I getting this present now? Well, because there was a meeting. It was his well, birthday. What was the meeting? So <laughs> it's just hard to, hard yeah. to believe that, that that context wasn't provided and that Trump didn't know about the meeting, if not at the time or before, then right after. Okay, that's one thing. The second thing, I think very important that we have to know here is what was the painting, right? What was <laughs> because I I gotta say I I have a, an image of what this painting was, you know, given by a you know a Russian ol- oligarch to Trump. It had to have been something like Trump, you know, like a big like ornate gold frame and an oil painting of like Trump standing next to a lion or something. Wouldn't that be what you would imagine? Something like that, right? Well, I think we can we can have somebody do a mock drawing of uh, of, of the painting that you imagine, and um, we'll we'll post it on Yahoo. Do Yara. we know for sure that Trump was even in the picture? I I don't know. That. I don't know. We, no. we, 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 don't, we don't know what the painting was. All right, all right. Let's move on there because there was lots else that took place this week, including the fact you know, this is the one year anniversary of the Mueller investigation, and you, Mark, had a uh, scoop. Uh, about a, a new avenue in the Mueller investigation that we didn't know about before. Tell us about it. Well, I discovered uh, some about a year ago, in fact, I think I, I got in touch with or somehow was put together with somebody named Jason Sullivan, who is the, at least for a while, the Twitter expert or social media expert for Roger Stone, the former Watergate figure who became a longtime advisor to Donald Trump, was kind of an official advisor to Donald Trump until 2015 and then became remained an unofficial advisor to Donald Trump during last year's campaign, um, who had various PACs and activities supporting Donald Trump but not directly during the campaign, the 2016 political uh, presidential campaign. And uh, Jason Sullivan, who I've kept in touch with for the last year, uh, phoned me about a week ago to say uh, some FBI agents had been around his mother's house in the uh, Inland Empire in Los Angeles. And is there any way I could find out who they were? 
And I said, well, what kind of badges did they show? He said he, he didn't know. Anyway, uh, he, he rang me back two or three days later and said, well, in fact, now that these FBI agents, uh, well, one FBI agent from Washington had now uh, further got in touch with him and eventually got in touch with him by Skype and said he's working with Robert Mueller, the special counsel investigating the Russia collusion thing. And uh, he wanted to deliver subpoenas to Jason uh, Sullivan, including two subpoenas, one for Sullivan himself to appear before Mueller's grand jury, at least the initial date was tomorrow, and a second one for various documents that Sullivan had uh, to be delivered tomorrow. And uh, they wanted to ask him, according to Sullivan, about his dealings with Roger Stone. Well, I mean, yeah. so what, what, what does this tell us? What, what are they getting at here? And what's the theory upon which Jason Sullivan uh, might be a, uh, a witness? Well, I think the broad theory is that Roger Stone somehow was involved with WikiLeaks in circulating and maybe even hacking the WikiLeaks, the material, anti-Hillary material, anti-Democratic Party material, um, uh, which was put out by WikiLeaks, uh, well, by WikiLeaks and Guccifer, another hacker, uh, during mm-hmm. the summer of uh, 2016, and then over rather relentlessly, beginning in early October um, 2016, there are text messages which I've seen between Roger and WikiLeaks, uh, and we believe that's Julian Assange himself, who of course is in prison, kind of in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. And um, uh, but on the other hand, the the, the available text messages show that Roger uh, irritated Julian and Julian essentially told him to go away. Uh, There are also text messages between uh, Roger and Guccifer, too. But those aren't particularly friendly either. Roger claims that all this stuff is basically made up that, yeah, he had some contacts, but he he wasn't working for the Russians. He didn't engage with um, uh, uh, WikiLeaks or or Julian Assange, even though at one point he said or he tweeted that he had met Julian Assange. Well, he publicly yeah, yeah, said, I've yeah. been in direct communication with, with Julian, Julian Assange. Assange. He later yeah. walked that back and said he actually it was through an intermediary who he later identified as Randy Co- Credico, comedian, right. a, uh, a guest on Skullduggery in the, in the past who has said it's all bullshit that he never uh, communicated anything to J- Roger Stone that was relevant to uh, uh, he, he never knew anything about what Julian Assange was going to be released leasing through WikiLeaks. But let's also not forget that that, uh, Roger Stone, uh, shortly before the Podesta emails were released, um, said on Twitter that Podesta was going to get his time in the barrel, which to many people looked like he was predicting um, the the release of those of those uh, of those emails. So, um, you know, I don't know. I was actually just going to mention that. (laughs) It strikes me as not insignificant that at this stage in this investigation, Mueller is still scrutinizing people who are very close to Roger Stone. Because after well, all— we also know. Because after also, all—let me just finish, Mark, because after all, yeah. I mean, you know, look, the, the, the one—other than obstruction of justice, like the one—when we talk about collusion, the one clear crime— uh, that is that has been identified as a as a possible crime. Not that we know that anyone from the Trump administration or associated with them did this, but is is the actual hacking, the actual hacking, stealing and disseminating of these emails. So uh, again, we don't know that Roger Stone was involved in that. But to me, it is interesting that Mueller is still looking at that, maybe looking at that pretty seriously. And evidence of that being this subpoena that that you the st- story about the subpoena that you broke. Well, also, I mean, it is a fact that that several other witnesses, or at least a handful of other witnesses, and I think I can think of three at least, who have been chased by Mueller, have uh, Mueller's indicated to them or or questioned them about their dealings with Roger Stone. Uh, Sam somebody Nunberg. named Sam Nunberg, right? Somebody named Michael Caputo, right. who is very close to Trump, and Randy Credico, who last I heard was still being chased by Mueller, but hadn't uh, was trying to avoid him. I, I I believe that there are other people that Mueller's looking at in this context as well. Which raises the question, does Mullah have some stuff about uh, Roger Stone and Julian Assange that we don't know about, some evidence actually demonstrating that there was right. a connection? And, and, yeah. and, and to support that theory is the fact that Stone has repeatedly said that he has not been contacted by Mueller. So if 
Mueller is contacting, or Mueller's people are contacting people around Stone that would suggest... And, and not Stone, yeah. It would yeah. suggest that Stone is their target, uh, or right. is a target. Is a target, and in fact, he yeah. said that to me as recently as, like, yesterday. Stone yeah. did. Yeah, that he hadn't been contacted by. All right, so another thing that happened in this, this one-year anniversary of the launching of the Mueller probe uh, is that uh, Rudy Giuliani, one of uh, the president's lawyers, uh, went on... Uh, uh, cable television and and uh, said that uh, the Trump camp uh, the Trump uh, White House uh, had uh, heard from the Mueller team and the Mueller team uh, communicated to them that uh, they do not believe that uh, a pre- sitting president can be indicted and that they would follow the uh, guidelines of the Justice Department um, and uh, so uh, they were Giuliani was uh, happy to to uh, spread that word far and wide. Um, Anybody who's a regular listening listener to uh, Skullduggery will not be surprised by that. We've been projecting that um, from the beginning that Mueller will see himself as a officer of the Justice Department and would fo- would follow the guidance uh, from the uh, the Office of Legal Counsel, their legal opinion, which has been in place since the Nixon administration, then uh, then reinforced during the Clinton administration. But I got to say. Um, I, I'm just not sure those are the best talking points uh, for Rudy Giuliani. Um, uh, that's really the kind of thing that you want to talk about. Because, look, the premise um, of a statement like that is, well, maybe he's got a case against the president. Maybe the president did uh, uh, engage in illegal acts, but he can't be indicted. So why would you even bring that up? Because he's out of control, I think. I mean, as anything that, I mean, arguably since he became, quote unquote, Trump's lawyer, all, all Rudy Giuliani has done is drop, drop Trump more deeply in the, the mess here. Um, I, I can't remember. Well, there was one thing last week where he, he basically completely contradicted Trump on something and uh, arguably helped to build a case against Trump. So I, I and I think the issue is that, that Giuliani's, he, I hate to say it because I'm getting old myself, but he's. He's a bit past it. Well, he's certainly not um, <laughs> exercising a whole lot of uh, self-discipline. I, I saw there was a video that one of my colleagues showed me of uh, Giuliani. I think he was leaving Washington. He was at Reagan National Airport. And all of a sudden, a, a reporter for TMZ shows up <laughs> and starts asking him questions uh, about this uh, this issue of whether a president can be indicted. And I think the question was, well, even if the president shot someone, he couldn't be indicted? And Giuliani essentially said... Uh, no, a president, a sitting president can never be indicted. He'd have to be impeached and removed from office first. I have my doubts about whether a president who shot someone uh, would not be um, indicted. But, uh, you know, he's the lawyer, not me. I mean, I have my doubts about Rudy Giuliani, anything Rudy Giuliani says, to tell you the truth. So, I mean, while I agree with you that the Justice Department historically has, you know, frowned on the idea of indicting presidents, I don't think Giuliani is the best person to make that argument. Well, even if you don't indict the president, uh, there still uh, might be a reason to pursue a case uh, in order either for to write a report and present it uh, to the House of Representatives or certainly present it to Rod Rosenstein and let him choose to do with it as he as he uh, wishes. But, you know, what's interesting to me is it looks less and less likely that Trump is going to sit down for an interview with uh, Mueller on the Russia probe. But the new uh, disclosures this week uh, that the president has now acknowledged in his financial disclosure form that he did uh, reimburse Michael Cohen for the hush money payment to um, to Stormy Daniels, the porn star, and uh, prompting the acting head of the Office of Government Ethics to write a letter to Rod Rosenstein saying this is something that should have been reported in last year's financial disclosure form. Uh, and uh, we're alerting you to this so you can do with it what you uh, wish. Seems to me that there is at least a prima facie uh, a case that the president deliberately omitted uh, a debt on his financial disclosure form last year. Now, we don't know when Donald Trump learned that Michael Cohen had paid off the porn star. And uh, it may be he didn't learn in real time. He didn't learn to sometime in 2017 after he filed the financial disclosure form. But the only way you can get that information 
is by asking Donald Trump himself. So, uh, Michael Cohen is a target already in the so- Southern District. He is not going to be available for an interview. So unless you have the answer in your documents, the only place you can get the answer is by questioning uh, the president of the United States. That would be presumably done by the lawyer, by the prosecutors in the Southern District. So even if Mueller doesn't um, uh demand an interview with the president on the Russia probe, it may be that the prosecutors in the Southern District investigating Michael Cohen's uh, business affairs and uh, financial records feel that they need to question the president to see whether or not he deliberately omitted uh, that information on his 2017 disclosure form. And you would start by asking, when did you learn that Michael Cohen had paid off Stormy Daniels to keep her silent during the 2017? 2016 election. But moreover, according to the latest information that's coming out, which I don't completely trust because it's from this Avenatti who obviously likes the spotlight, um, you know, Michael Cohen got very large amounts of money from people uh, with business before various U.S. government agencies uh, after Donald Trump became president, like probably a bit before. And, you know, I think there's a serious issue here as to whether um, he was you know, hustling for money or whether he actually had some influence over the administration and was able to get things out of the administration that he... Michael that, Cohen? Uh, Michael Cohen. Now, I must say that... That's, it's hard to imagine right. he had influence with anybody in the government. Wait, wait, wait. wait. No, I, did you just say I, Michael Cohen... Well, I agree. Did you just say Michael Cohen hustling for money? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, but I was just going to add, in fact, to reinforce yeah. Mike's point that yeah. somebody very close to Trump that I know said to me that Trump didn't trust Michael Cohen at all because Michael Cohen was always going around trying to raise money for himself using Trump's reputation. And Trump doesn't like people doing that because he likes he likes to be the only one who can use his reputation to raise money for himself. So that also tells you that if they do indict Michael Cohen, uh, and he's, it does strike me that he's in pretty serious trouble, that that the possibilities of a pardon are receding rapidly. Um, so just to sort of uh, uh, wrap up on the one-year anniversary of, of Mueller, what's your, what's your gut tell you about where this is going? I mean, my gut tells me we're still at a very early stage. I mean, if you remember, you, you and I were both witnesses to the whole Kenneth Starr investigation, which went on for like five years. And it started in one place, which was the Whitewater, uh, almost incomprehensible property dealings there by the Clintons and their crooked pal Jim McDougal and ended up with with an impeachment of Clinton for having an affair with Monica Lewinsky, which is nothing compared to all this Stormy Daniels stuff. Someone someone used the metaphor of an iceberg, that the Mueller investigation is like you see like a third of the iceberg sticking up from the water, uh, but two-thirds of it is submerged and uh, we just don't know what it is. And, you know, look, there have been uh, indictments, um, you know, Plea deals, Papadopoulos, uh, the, even the Russian troll farm. Nobody knew about uh, that, that those things were coming, and, um, and then they happened. So I think that there is more that will come out, and I think my, uh, Mark is, is right that this is going to go on. Well, we'll for have a to long, have Mark back long. for the second anniversary of Mueller's appointment. Yeah. But before we let him go, we do have to um, make mention of another thing we learned this week, which was the FBI code name for the Trump investigation when it began in 2016, uh, Crossfire Hurricane. I was born in a crossfire hurricane. The immortal first words of the Rolling Stones song, uh, Jumping Jack Flash. Uh, you know, an aptly right? named code name for, uh, for, for this investigation, given the fact uh, that between this and the Hillary Clinton investigation, the FBI found itself very much in the middle of a crossfire hurricane. It may be the most inspired thing the FBI did in 2016. <laughs> By the way, I, I didn't know that that came from Chuck Big Jack Flash. <laughs> I yes. went back and looked at the I went back and looked at the the lyrics of that song um um and one of them is I was raised by a toothless bearded hag. I have no idea. <laughs> maybe that's maybe that's a reference to the uh, like maybe that's some reference to the, the witch hunt that uh, Trump keeps talking about, but uh well, I don't no, know. No, no. This predated this predated the witch hunt. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. But it was a pretty good. That time story was was actually pretty interesting. I mean, um, they uh, talked about how two days after the investigation uh, began, uh, the bureau very quietly sent two agents to London 
to interview the Australian ambassador to Britain who had Alexander Downer, yeah. who who had had that you know uh, wine fueled conversation with uh, George Papadopoulos in which Papadopoulos tells him that uh, uh, that he had uh, been tipped off uh, that the Russians had um, these uh, all these damaging uh, emails involving um, Hillary Clinton. Um, and you know, I think what's important about that in terms of all the sort of narratives out there uh, about this investigation is I think that pretty definitively uh, shows that that's really, um, what got the uh, FBI, um, you know, in, involved in this investigation? That that's that's where they thought that's why they thought that that there may be um, uh, something that really had to be investigated here, as opposed to uh, you know just the Steele dossier, uh, which is what um, you know House Republicans uh, have been arguing uh, all along. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Although to to be fair to Steele, the fact is that. Steele had been a major informant for the FBI for several years, particularly on the issue of football corruption, i.e. soccer corruption. He had helped them build their case uh, against FIFA, which which produced like more than 40 indictments. Uh, I have emails showing that he, he was in touch with the FBI going back to 20, probably 2013 or 2014, uh, which I knew about when I was covering the FIFA scandal. And the fact is that Steele met, I think, for the first time with somebody he had met through the in the FBI through the FIFA case, uh, or at least he spoke to him, like several weeks, uh, July the 5th, and the FBI investigation wasn't open until July the 31st. So the Steele thing is not totally insignificant. No, it's not. And, and but but um, it's some could argue that it's that it's a little bit tainted by the fact that the steel that the work that still did was funded by democrats and um and so if the theory is that the FBI launched this investigation um solely on the basis of the steel dossier um then um the fact that yeah that's fraudulent that's that, false that's yeah. false and this is oh. this time story I, ju- just i think um um undermines that narrative and so that's that's important We'll be back with more Skullduggery. So we are joined now by a special guest, Michael Daniel, who was the White House cyber coordinator uh, during the Obama administration and was on the front lines of dealing with the uh, Russian cyber attacks on the election in 2016. Michael Daniel, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Um, well, look, this is a, uh, a particularly uh, interesting time to have you because we learned this week amidst all the flurry of news about the Russia and Mueller investigation that the White House had quietly abolished your former job, White House cyber coordinator. What did you make of that decision? Well, honestly, I think it's a mistake uh, to do that. Uh, at the very least, it certainly sends a very bad signal uh, regarding the importance that the White House puts on the topic and on the need for coordinating government activity across the board on that subject. So uh, tell us what you had the job. What does the White House cyber coordinator do? And uh, if there isn't one, um, how will that manifest itself uh, in the government? S- sure. So I think you know, the primary point of that job is to drive coordination, as the name says, across all the different government agencies that have a mission uh, in cybersecurity, which is a lot of them. Uh, and the that role, uh, that job is intended to coordinate the development of policy, the execution of policy uh, among all the different departments and agencies. Uh, but it's also intended to be the advisor uh, to the president, to the national security advisor and others in the White House on cybersecurity issues. Uh, that individual is supposed to also help coordinate the U.S. government response to any significant cyber incidents that uh, occur and also to help drive our activities to disrupt what our adversaries are trying to do to us. Uh, so it's a very broad ranging uh, role. Mike, let me, let, me, let me ask. Let me just play a devil's advocate here for a second. Um, I just want to understand: is it is it clear to you that this is a a downgrading of of cyber as a priority, or might it just be that the Trump administration is you know uh, shuffling the deck chairs? That this is a bureaucratic reorganization; they're streamlining; they want to make it more efficient. 
as I understand it, there still are pretty senior people on the National Security Council who are cyber experts. Um, the deputy um, national security uh, advisor under under John Bolton um, may be able to take on some of those responsi- responsibilities. So for people out there who are you know, skeptical um, that government is as efficient and streamlined as it can be, couldn't this just be uh, an effort to improve uh, things along those lines? Sure. And I'm certainly not going to be one to argue that you can't uh, seek efficiencies or that there's something written in stone about the exact job title that I had or how we had organized it. Um, but a couple of points to what you said. One is that the deputy national security advisor, um, I actually think it's great that uh, she has some experience in this area and can take on some of the responsibilities. And, and who's that? So that Mira, I think, is the one that they're referring to, uh, Rydell, the one that's the um, – cur- That's right. Yeah. Currently serving Riddell, as, yeah. Yeah, as John Bolton's deputy. Um, but that position of deputy has so many different responsibilities that there's no way that any person in that position could focus uh, the amount of time needed uh, to deal with all the cybersecurity issues that the U.S. government faces. That's why you want to have somebody that's in that, that role. Um, second, the way that this apparently was communicated was in a memo that basically said that the position that that I held was uh, eliminated and that it's being devolved to two different people. Um, and you're right. Um, you know, in theory, that could work, but there's no sort of indication of how uh, the various responsibilities are being divided up. Um, and if you're really interested in streamlining, why not, um, you know, keep the keep the senior position and, uh, you know, eliminate the two deputies. And if you are concerned about the word coordinator, retitle it. Um, so from my perspective, there's it's it's a it's a strange signal to send. And the way that it was communicated, um, it just doesn't seem to uh, indicate that they're putting a high priority on the topic or the position. Well, is it because the cyber threat has diminished in some way? <laughs> Uh, I wish that were the case, actually, but I, uh, I don't think that's the case. I think instead, if anything, the threats we face are going to continue to get uh, get more intense and worse in cyberspace before they get better. Well, how would you assess those those threats? And I mean, what where are we most vulnerable? Where are those threats coming from? Um, and how should the U.S. government uh, prioritize them? Well, if you think about it, the threats are actually getting worse in a couple of different ways. Uh, one of which is that we're making the th- the threat space actually bigger. You know, we're creating this Internet of Things, right? Um, we're adding more and more stuff to the Internet on a daily basis. You know, your watch, your clock, your coffee maker, your car, you know, everything is now going to be hooked up to the Internet. And so now we've got uh, a space that's growing bigger by the day, literally by the day. You're adding millions upon millions of devices. So it's the only domain that I know of where there's more of it on a daily basis. Uh, And it's more heterogeneous. So instead of just being laptops and desktops, it's now all these different kinds of devices, which makes it that much harder to defend. Second, all sorts of adversaries have figured out that they can effectively pursue their interests through cyberspace, whether you're talking criminals, hacktivists, or nation states. And so there's just a lot more malicious actors out there that are trying to do bad things in cyberspace. And then third... Uh, we're becoming ever more digitally dependent. You know, I draw the distinction back to or the comparison back to when I first started in government in the mid-1990s, if the network went down, we just did something else for the day. You know, we worked on our non-internet connected computers. We worked on, you know, we called people on the phone. We uh, did other things. But now if the network goes down, you pretty much have to shut down operations because you're so dependent on those digital capabilities. So in those three ways, the, the threat is becoming you know, that much more severe almost on a, on a daily basis. You mentioned nation states, and I want to talk about Russia in a moment. But before we get there, um, uh, the Trump administration, uh, the, the president just announced we're pulling out of the uh, Iranian nuclear deal. And Iran was one of those cyber threats that you was was very much on the top of your radar when you were in that job. And there were a number of Iranian uh, uh, cyber attacks on U.S. and foreign uh, and our foreign allies. Um, Is there a concern that uh, as relations with 
Iran deteriorate, in the, at least in the short term, um, that we could see a resurgence of Iranian attacks on the United States, cyber attacks. I would certainly think that's a very high possibility. The Iranians perceive the use of cyber capabilities as a useful tool for them. Um, they see it, you know, if they are carrying out uh, cyber-enabled activities against, say, our financial sector, they see that as proportionate to uh, an appropriate response to economic sanctions that have been levied on them uh, by the West. So I think that you know, between its its utility and its and in in their perception, its proportional nature. Um, I think we should expect uh, to see an increase in Iranian cyber activity against us. What did you see the Iranians doing when you were uh, uh, when you were in the White House? Well, you could see them very much investing in those capabilities um, to expand their ability to carry out um, offensive cyber operations. Um, whether against the financial services industry, the energy sector in particular, those were two that they targeted uh, very strongly. And you've seen them continue that um, even if they weren't targeting the U.S. directly. They were targeting you know, uh, na- other neighbors in the, in the region. Um, so even over the intervening time when they ramped down their activities against us, they've continued to gain experience and uh, grow their capability as they've been using those capabilities against um, other – uh, other countries in the region. Have we seen them doing that while the um, the nuclear deal was in place? Sure, absolutely. Can you give us an example? Well, if you look at what's happened to some of the targeting uh, and some of the activities that have happened and incidents that have happened in Saudi Arabia, um, some of those have been attributed to uh, Iran. Well, the Saudi Aramco thing predated the nuclear deal, though. That was that was yes, several the, years ago. Uh, right? But those activities have continued, and Saudi Aramco has continued to be under attack um, even subsequent to the nuclear deal. If you look at what happened in Qatar, uh, there was a disinformation campaign um, that was uh, carried out there that um, many people ascribe to uh, and uh, attribute to Iranian actors. So I think that you know, when you look at their level of activity, uh, they have continued to hone their skills and invest in uh, these capabilities as a as a tool for them to use as part of their statecraft. Michael, um, you a minute ago you mentioned um, uh, offensive uh, cyber operations. In other words, not just cybersecurity, but um, going on the offense um, against um, some of our rivals out there. And that's a big, uh, difficult, and kind of controversial. Uh, area of cyber policy, and I'm wondering, um, and it will it relevant to the discussion that I think we're going to have in a minute about about what the Russians did and how the Obama administration responded or didn't respond to that. But talk to us a little bit about how how you think about those issues, what the rules of the road should be, because uh, it's not clear uh, that in this area, for example, we have that decisive an advantage or any advantage over some of our rivals like the Russians. Well, I think that. When you think about how you incorporate offensive cyber capabilities as a tool of statecraft, certainly almost every nation out there is going to either has already started down that path or will start down that path um, here in the 21st century. It's going to become a tool of statecraft just like diplomatic means, economic means, military, law enforcement, intelligence. It's going to be a tool in the toolbox. And in my view, the uh, the what we need to be how we need to be thinking about it is we need to be working towards several uh, several key ways of uh, approaching that that issue. One of which is transparency, both in our doctrine, like what how do we say that we're going to employ the that those tools under what conditions for what ends. Um, I think that we should be more explicit about the fact that we have those capabilities, um, just like we protect carefully the uh, particular specifications of our military hardware, but we don't make it a secret that we have it. Um, second, I think we ought to be uh, looking at how we support the norms uh, of behavior in cyberspace. What do we think states should do and not do? And I think we ought to abide by those. And so, for example, I think that uh, we should not be disrupting or attacking critical infrastructure during peacetime. Um, How do you do that uh, without you know, an international treaty? I mean, who's going to abide by that if it's if it's not agreed to, um, you know, by the community of nations? Well, I actually think that you will uh, even with treaties, right? Um, even if you had a treaty, there will be those who will violate, uh, who will say they'll agree to the treaty and then violate it. 
um, I think that you can actually establish some norms of behavior that are actually quite uh, robust and that nations uh, will think twice before they violate. It doesn't mean that some won't violate it and that everyone will uphold it all of the time. But I think if you can establish it as a baseline of how you use that capability and how you think about it, um, that that will be an improvement and contribute to greater stability in in cyberspace. Because certainly one of my biggest concerns is that we have an incident that spirals out of control um, or that uh, somebody doesn't takes an action and there's a whole bunch of unintended consequences to it that results in escalation. Um, I think that's one of the biggest risks that we actually face right now. Um, let's uh, talk about the Russians for a moment. Uh, back in March, just a couple of months ago, Homeland Security uh, released a report that uh, said the Russians uh, were responsible for a series of cyber attacks that targeted American and European nuclear power plants and water and electrical systems and could have sabotaged or shut power plants off at will. The strikes accelerated in late 2015. At the same time the Russian interference in the American election was underway, the attackers had compromised some operators in North America and Europe by the spring of 2017 after President Trump was inaugurated. How much of this, of the Russian cyber attacks on the American electrical grid were you aware of when you were in the White House? Well, certainly we were very concerned about Russian activity across a whole range of areas from uh, the very beginning of my time in the White House all the way through the time that I left. Russia has consistently been identified as one of our top you know, cyber adversaries. I mean, the DNI's uh, annual threat assessment pretty much consistently lists four countries of concern, Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea. That list has remained very stable <laughs> uh, over the last uh, few years. And so certainly tracking Russian uh, activity and what they were targeting was a very big part of uh, you know the intelligence reports that uh, all of us in the, the White House received on a uh, regular basis. So that was – and that was the reason why uh, we were very – interested in figuring out how we could develop plans uh, and strategies to push back on uh, the level of malicious activity we were seeing across the board. But the idea that they had actually compromised the networks of American energy, water, and nuclear plants, that the Russians were inside the computer networks of these systems, that sounds really alarming. Well, and that's why you would you saw you know various activities happen, like the uh, effort between DHS and FBI to engage with our electric sector, for example, and um, the spring of 2016 uh, to really highlight some of the threats uh, that we're facing. Um, but of course, there's always this issue of uh, exactly how much you can say, um, you know, due to classification and the need to protect uh, intelligence sources and methods. Uh, but certainly, um, we were you didn't, much- you didn't tell the public about it. Well, there's always a concern about exactly how much we can uh, we can say due to you know uh, classification reasons and and other things. I think one of the one of the issues that all governments face is exactly how to communicate about cyber threats in a way that is measured, um, that does not both lead to complacency, but also does not um, result in uh, you know a lot of times uh, you know. One of the concerns that I have is that in this area, we still face this problem of a lot of times cyber intelligence is either reported in ways that are uh, hopelessly uh, technical, uh, such that a normal person couldn't understand them, or they're breathlessly apocalyptic. And uh, as usual, it's, it's, not, it's neither of those two. So what were the Russians doing in our uh, American electric uh, and utility uh, systems? What were, what were, why were they there? What were they seeking to accomplish? Well, without sort of getting into uh, you know, confirming or denying you know, particular incidents, you can imagine that um, at the Russians' you know, goal there would be able to understand what those systems are, how they operate, and whether or not they could hold them at risk. Um, during a conflict, meaning they see it as what we would call operational preparation of the battlefield, meaning that they want to be able to um, put those systems at risk if they feel like there's escalation with the United States. 
I mean, I got to say, the idea that the Russians were actually in the grid, uh, and, I, you know, it's, it's still unclear. Were they probing? Were they actually in a position to shut down a nuclear power plant or a, an electric utility at will? Well, I think that's a very good question, and I think that that's why um, the the intelligence in this area and the stories in this area often get very confused because you can you can have access to a business system, in other words, for a power utility, right? You could have access to the system that uh, bills customers, for example, mm-hmm. uh, and have no ability to you know do anything to the actual power supply. Uh, so I think but that they're mapping out the corporate structure and the computer networks. They know where correct. those commu- computer networks that are. Yeah. yeah, that could be one thing that they're that they're seeking to do. And certainly uh, even that could be troubling because you can imagine that um, by, um, you know, trying to disrupt the business operations of a utility that you might be able to try to impact uh, its ability to uh, supply or maintain uh, power. For example, so there's all sorts of reasons that you could be uh, doing that from both an intelligence and a operational standpoint. Michael, I, I'm sure you can't uh, get into this in any detail, but is it would it be fair for the American people to assume that the United States does similar things in other countries, such as say Russia, that we also might be probing their um, infrastructure, their uh, electric grid, so on and so forth? Well, I certainly can't uh, discuss any, you know, details of what the United States uh, may or may not be doing. But you can you can safely assume that just as we build capabilities to target and hold our adversaries' capabilities at risk in the physical world, we would also be seeking to do that through cyberspace. I mean, that's one of the reasons that we created Cyber Command. Right. So you were so you uh, uh, held the position of of cyber coordinator uh, toward the end of the. Obama administration and in the late summer of 2016 when it became clear to the intelligence community that the Russians were attacking our uh, election system, probing uh, actual uh, voting systems in states and obviously the hacks and the leaks of emails and all of that. And you and Isakov has written about this in, in Russian roulette um, extensively. Uh, you were a uh, proponent of and advised uh, the administration to to really do some pretty aggressive uh, retaliatory strikes, including uh, massive denial of service attacks against state-controlled Russian media, shutting down websites associated with some of the leaks of those emails, um, even attacking the Russian intelligence services and Putin and his family. Um, And uh, the powers that be in the Obama administration uh, were not on board. They didn't go for that. Tell us why you think that that is the case. Well, I think that you know, there's a there's a few things that I would want to make clear on that. You know, part of my job um, in in the White House was to present options, um, and it didn't necessarily mean that I always thought that uh, all of those options were ones that we should definitely do. Um, but one of your one of the things that you should do as a good staffer in the White House is make sure that um, make sure that the policymakers have the full range of uh, possibilities in making their Uh, in making their decisions. Um, I think that ultimately the course that the Obama administration pursued um, was one that took into account all of the different aspects of not just the um, geopolitical relationship with Russia, although that was important too, but the overall context that that we were dealing with at the time, uh, the domestic uh, situation that we were in, the when you, um, when you say the domestic the un- situation, you're talking about that we were in the middle of an election. In the middle of an, a highly charged election right, right. Um, that was unlike anything that we had actually seen in a long time. Um, and I think that um, when you take all of that into account, I'm always very reluctant to do any sort of Monday morning quarterbacking, um, you know, because there's still there there's always uncertainty and uh, you know the so-called you know the 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 fog of war, if you will, um, that's occurring in all of these situations. So um, I think that you know that we charted a course as best we could through all of those different uh, different competing competing priorities and and uncertainties. As you look back on it from today's perspective, um, there were some who would argue that the failure 
to have a more vigorous response at the time, uh, in real time, when the Russian cyber attacks on the election were taking place, uh, did send its own signal to uh, the Kremlin and that uh, Putin in some ways was emboldened by that. He really didn't pay any consequences for the uh, cyber attacks and the influence campaign during the 2016 election. I think you can argue that uh, in one sense, but I also think that, you know, how much price the Russians will pay uh, down the road is still unclear. Um, you know, for example, I think you can see uh, the level of uh, trust uh, has continued to deteriorate. You know, their ability to uh, conduct relations with anybody in Europe has continued to uh, has continued to degrade. Um, and certainly some of their uh, ostensible uh, closest allies, the Chinese, the Indians and others were – if you don't think they weren't paying attention to the fact that the Russians were meddling in somebody else's internal affairs in that uh, – to that degree, um, they, they – those countries pay very close attention to that. Um, and I think it could have a negative consequence for the Russians strategically in the long run. Didn't stop them from meddling in the French election. I still think that the the Russians may well end up paying a long-term price uh, for these kinds of activities uh, in terms of their uh, their ability to have standing in the world and have uh, and achieve some of their other uh, their other goals. Well, how aggressively do you think they might um, uh, meddle in in our? I mean, we've got midterm elections coming up. We know that uh, the, you know they spend a lot of time probing uh, the state election systems. We also know that there is there is no kind of federal defense because the states don't uh, they, they don't want the federal government involved in their election systems and so it's a, it's it, the security measures I guess are done state by state. So how concerned are you that the Russians may continue this kind of activity and even if they can't alter results, that what their real goal is is to undermine confidence in our system um, and and therefore in our democracy? Is that something that you are concerned about? you know, right now and, and heading into midterm elections? Oh, certainly I'm concerned about it. Uh, I'm certainly concerned not just about the Russians, but that um, that other uh, other groups um, may not even nation states, but, you know, uh, hacktivist groups and others that are doing things for a cause may try to also undertake disruption operations. Adopt from the Russian Adopt, playbook in uh, 2016. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. And, and run that try to run some of those same plays in 2018. Um, I think that's a, a possibility that we should very much be preparing for. Have you seen any indication of that? I have not. Um, in certainly none of our member companies at, uh, within the Cyber Threat Alliance have been reporting seeing that kind of activity uh, that we would attribute to malicious cyber uh, activity. But I, I think that's a very live possibility and one that um, I want all of our, you know, our members to be paying attention to and that I think the U.S. government should be paying attention to. You should to. tell us who your members are, what, what this <laughs> sure. group is that you've, that you've got yeah. since yeah. you left uh, government. So I am now the president and CEO of an uh, organization, a nonprofit called the Cyber Threat Alliance, and we are made up of 17 of the largest cybersecurity companies, uh, ranging from Symantec and McAfee and Palo Alto and Checkpoint and Fortinet and Cisco. Um, we have uh, we run a platform that enables those companies to share threat intelligence um, on a daily basis uh, at machine speed, and we really seek to uh, have our companies share that intelligence so they can uh, have much greater awareness and improve their products and services for all their their customers and clients. And by the way, that that job that you had, the cyber coordinator, sometimes called the cyber czar, one important. Dimension of that job, as I understand it, is being public facing, being the person who interacts with the private sector, because that's such a huge part of the equation. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So uh, you were the White House cyber coordinator. If uh, you came back into government now as the total White House, as the total U.S. government cyber czar, and you could order anybody to do anything uh, that you thought needed to be done, uh, give us the two or three things that, uh, uh, that as czar you would dictate. Well, one of the things I definitely learned about being the uh, cybersecurity coordinator is I couldn't order anybody to do anything. Um, so for the purposes of this exercise, <laughs> we're giving you that power. So why does it matter that, that the job's been eliminated? <laughs> yeah, that's – you know, I think the uh, – uh, you know, I think that there's a few things that, that 
I, certainly, I think the government should continue doing it. And, I, and, I, and to give the Trump administration credit, I think many of these policies have continued. I think one is um, we very much have to continue down the path of um, changing the way that the U.S. government on the civilian agency side provisions and does its cybersecurity. Um, we have tried to um, say that every civilian agency, whether it's the State Department, the Justice Department, or the Marine Mammal Commission, is responsible for its own cybersecurity, and that's just um, not a workable proposition. So we need to continue down the path of enabling civilian agencies to focus on the cybersecurity of the stuff they care about, which is the high-end uh, applications and things that interact with their workforce and their customers and move the cybersecurity of the network and other things to a centralized um, place like DHS or GSA uh, within the government. So that's one thing is to improve the security of the um, the federal networks. Second, I would continue to uh, want to drive towards really having integrated campaign plans for um, how we think about as a strategic matter over – having plans that stretch out over two to three years for how we're going to disrupt what the um, the adversaries are trying to do to us. Um, and then three, um, I would really look at continuing to refine the way that uh, our all of our agencies collaborate operationally together within the government and then with the private sector uh, to respond to cyber incidents when they happen. Um since you mentioned the Marine Mammal Commission, I will point out that uh, an alarming story that broke this uh, uh, just this week, uh, Ukraine says military dolphins captured by <laughs> Russia went on a hunger strike. Um, and I don't know, maybe that's uh, maybe that's something that uh, the uh, the commission ought to be dealing with. But uh, Michael Daniel, thanks for joining us uh, on Skullduggery. You're quite welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks to Michael Daniel and Mark Hosenball for joining us on this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And SiriusXM subscribers, you can now listen to Skullduggery on POTUS Channel 124. We'll talk to you next week.